The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Tuesday, August 20th. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Yesterday, we spent the entire top of the show demonstrating how the economic analysis of the director of the White House Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, Peter Navarro, how that analysis was foolish, how it was untrue, how it did not calm the markets. His poo-pooing of the Yixie, our word for the inverted yield curve, not justified. It was an unjustified poo-pooing. Will he rue that which he poo-pooed? You know it's true. But I could have spent even more time tearing into Mr. Navarro's arguments in yesterday's show. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to save one piece for today's show. So Peter Navarro not only poo-pooed the Yixi as an indicator of recession, he also poo-pooed any and all criticism from the Wall Street Journal. It was a veritable poo-poo, poo-poo platter. When Martha Raddatz of ABC quoted the Wall Street Journal as dubbing our current moment the Navarro recession... Navarro, you know, the recession guy, said this. Why isn't the Wall Street Journal been editorializing over the last 10 years about China's hacking our computers to steal trade secrets, about stealing our intellectual property, about forcing the technology transfer from our companies, about the currency manipulation that occurred for over a decade? Huh. Why hasn't the Wall Street Journal said anything over the last 10 years about China's hacking and stealing trade secrets and information and intellectual technology. Huh? It's weird because I read the Wall Street Journal every day and I see that stuff all the time. In fact, Thursday headline, Huawei technicians helped African governments spy on political opponents. Then June 25th, Huawei telecom gear much more vulnerable to hackers than rivals equipment. Day before that, global telecom carriers attacked by suspected Chinese hackers. It's the Wall Street Journal. It doesn't editorialize over China's hacking problems. All right. Maybe you want to say editorialize is only the editorial page. All right, let's go to, earlier this summer, commentary. What does Beijing want with your medical records? Then in May, Holman Jenkins, a a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, who is employed by the editorial page, wrote, understand, nobody's equipment in your telecom network can be as trusted as long as governments like China's, Russia's, Iran's, or North Korea's, in cahoots or in competition with criminal gangs, are trying to break into them. And this was my favorite. Just a few months before that, the editorial page ran an op-ed by Michael Pillsbury arguing, cyber intrusions into U.S. business networks have helped Chinese companies gain advantages in high-tech areas. Michael Pillsbury, Mr. Navarro, ever hear of him? Here is his Twitter bio, director of Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institution, quote, the leading authority on China attributed to at real Donald Trump. Michael Pillsbury has been identified in the New York Times as the president's top advisor on China outside the administration. Inside the administration, the top advisor on China is you and you and Mr. Pillsbury regularly consult on Chinese policy. That is Michael Pillsbury, who a few months ago wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, which you say hasn't for 10 years been editorializing about China and hacking and trade secrets. Stop. Just stop. You're not calming the markets. You're lashing out. This will please no one. Well, it will please one one. And I think we know who that one is, which is, of course, the point. On today's show, I spiel about a former game show host who has some thoughts about racism. 
But first, former deputy director of the CIA's counterterrorism center, Philip Mudd, looks back and assesses almost 20 years of counterterrorism. Much like the interrogation of KSM, Mudd wasn't here to make friends, but also arguably like that, I think we got some useful intel. Philip Mudd, up next. Philip Mudd is a former deputy director of the CIA Counterterrorism Center. He also worked with the FBI, which is somewhat rare. And he brings all of his experience to bear in the new book, Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. The book is a little more specific than that. What it is, is an accounting. And Philip Mudd is not an apologist, but he also comes to some strong and I think earned conclusions. It is an accounting of how our government prosecuted the war on terror and handled prisoners that were gathered up in the war on terror after 9-11. There are a lot of disquieting questions and issues that are considered, and Mudd tries to do his best to give both sides of the story and then the correct analysis, which I think is what you have to do as a CIA official. Philip Mudd, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. You actually just did the book right. I mean, I feel like we should capture that in 30 (laughs) seconds, and I'm going to take it around with me for the next month. (laughs) So uh, there's a number of places to start, but the place that I'd like to start first is the policy straitjacket. That's what you describe before 9-11. And there, Osama bin Laden was a person known to U.S. intelligence, but there were so many restrictions on possibly going after Osama bin Laden that he was never hit. Not just because of what happened, knowing about 9-11 and in retrospect, at the time, was that the right call to be so restrained, do you think, in how aggressive you would be in taking down this known terrorist, though not yet the architect and mastermind of 9-11? I think it was the right call. I mean, one of the challenges in writing the book, and and in fact, one of the main reasons I wrote it was to take people back in time. So b- before we go back and look at this from 2019, if you're in 1997 or 1998 or 1999, think of a couple scenarios. In a world where America said we're benefiting from the peace dividend, the, the evil Soviet Union is gone, things are relatively quiet. You've got issues in the 90s like the, the, the former Yugoslavia, but in general, we're not dealing with you know, kids training to jump under desk to prepare for nuclear conflagration. Think about saying, A, we're going to go assassinate a terrorism leader overseas, Mm -hmm. or B, we're going to conduct an operation high risk with U.S. military officers to raid a compound where a lot of people could die. I I think the challenge in these questions is instead of hindsight to going back and saying, what would you have done if what somebody had said, we're going to conduct a raid, and I don't know, maybe 30 people will die. What would you have done in the White House? I think, and people will disagree with this, some will, I think the right answer might have been, yeah, judicious caution was was okay. Do you think that if the rules of engagement post 9-11 were in place pre-9-11, we certainly would have been able to get him? I would say pretty good chance, uh, maybe maybe better than pretty good. And I'm being cautious here. Analysts, I think uh, analysts who are untrained tend to be not cautious. Analysts who spend 25, 35 years in the business tend to get more cautious. I think pretty good chance we would have gotten. And I would say better chance that we would have broken up the 9-11 plot. 
Mm-hmm. Then again, if you take your shot and you miss and 9-11 comes off, think about how unsympathetic the United States would have possibly appeared in the world's eyes. I mean, the narrative, there was already a chickens coming home to roost narrative. Imagine if, you know, some members of Osama bin Laden's family were killed in a raid that didn't kill him. I think, yeah, and I think the question is broader than that. I mean, if if you look at what happened after 9-11, not just at the the invasion of uh, army invasion along with u.s intelligence of afghanistan but a global effort i think one of the untold stories of 9-11 is how many countries around the world were cooperating with us we were talking to everybody so it was not just going after al-qaeda at its heart it was getting dozens and dozens maybe 100 plus countries around the world to say we're going to take this threat so seriously that we'll cooperate with you on picking up our own citizens I don't know how you get there without a catastrophic event. That's tragic, but I think in, the, in terms of global politics, it's realistic. So after 9-11 was the big question within the intelligence community, what do we do or how do we do it? How do we do it? Uh, the, I was at the White House on 9-11, evacuated from there. The sense, there was a simple question that people asked. We got to get these guys. Right. We got to get them before what we call the second wave. George Tenet, then the CIA director, often asked a question. If there is a second wave event, if there is another echo of 9-11, another major attack in the United States, do not tell me the day after that event, we should have done this, that, or the other thing. Tell me that today, and let's determine how we do it today. Don't have any regrets. People said, this can't happen again. Now, they may have questions now in 2019 about whether that was appropriate, what we did. Back then, everybody, including those elected in the Congress and the White House, were saying, this can never happen again, and we're going to take extraordinary steps to ensure that we don't have another catastrophic event. On 9-12-2001, if you had said intelligence, military, diplomatic, and other operations will mean that there is not another event, people would have said, that's crazy. This is going to happen again. We're vulnerable. It didn't happen again, and people forget it. what it was like then. We did extraordinary things. I acknowledge that. It's okay for people to say some of what we did they don't like. But, boy, back then, it, people said, take out the stops. Make sure it doesn't happen again. So these guys pulled off the greatest, most successful terrorist attack the world had ever seen. But it is not the case that this is the first time the U.S. ever detained terrorists or high-profile subjects or people who might know about plots. It's not the first time that strong allies of the United States, uh, you know, Israel and Black September, have done that too. How much does the game plan change just because they were so successful? Oh, it's night and day. Some of the things that were considered within days of 9-11, for example— arming a drone by the U.S. government. These were debated for years, and people said, we can't do that. We mm. can't come up with a decision on that. Some of the things that were, that, that were discussed, for example, how to detain an al-Qaeda prisoner, nobody ever thought about that before. Not, nobody would, you couldn't have gone into a room in 1999 or 2000 and said, can we even have a, a, a pie-in-the-sky conversation about how we would build detention sites for al-Qaeda prisoners that are not acknowledged publicly? People would have said, what are, you, what are you talking about? I, I cannot overestimate how much the world changed for us that day and how people j just said operations that weren't conceivable a couple of days ago. Now, not only are they conceivable, we'll decide to do them within 24, 48, 72 hours. So was the goal to break these prisoners uh, or was that if that was a byproduct of getting information, so be it? You know, how did you go about trying to extract good, actionable intelligence from them? 
No, you start by the, the sort of the, the least intrusive method. Some people didn't require techniques to talk, including senior al-Qaeda members. It's, a lot of this relates to individual psychology. One of the efforts you have underway is to look at every prisoner and say, what are they vulnerable to? Some of them are really scared. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk because I'm afraid of what you'll do. They might never have been subjected to an interrogation technique. If you get somebody like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the architect of 9-11, who's really tough, you have to look at there and say, A, do we know enough about him to corner him where he doesn't know what we know? And B, what's his psychological makeup to get to a lifeline situation? By that, I mean a situation where he says there's only way out, one way out to a better life. These guys know more than I thought they did. If I don't start speaking, I don't know where this is going to end up. I've got to take that lifeline out. It's a lifeline process. Mm. And the techniques who in, well, I don't want to ask who invented them, but the officers, the officers who were implementing them, was this, were these techniques they've done before or was there a combination of we've used these on prisoners pre 9-11 and now we're going to invent some given the, uh, the scope of the challenge today? So the core of the program and the, the enhanced interrogation techniques were what people were were using to train U.S. officers to resist techniques had they ever been captured. Right. So this is SEER, survival, evasion, yes, that's resistance, right. that's and right. escape. And if you do it backwards, maybe you could that's figure right. out a way to extract information. Yes. Now, recently, and there was this big lawsuit, and the United States is actually looking into these two uh, outside contractors as psychologists, Jessen and Mitchell. Were you familiar with their work? Did you know how important were they in the program, and did you know what they were doing when they were doing it? Yes, I knew. I was not a – I don't want to sort of try to sidestep this. The way the intelligence organization mm-hmm. works, there are people who collect information. That was not me. There are people who evaluate it. So the collectors were more involved directly in developing the interrogation program. People like me knew what was going on, but my job was to evaluate what the prisoners said. Um, I knew what was going on. I knew what they were up to. Let me be clear. It was the CIA – in consultation with the U.S. government, the White House, Department of Justice, et cetera, who decided what to do, it was not two contractors who told the CIA what to do. They were important because they were familiar with what you referred to as the SEER program, how we interrogated people in, uh, in training in the United States and how we might use that against al-Qaeda prisoners. But they didn't tell the CIA what to do. The CIA came down and said at one point, we're afraid these prisoners won't speak. What are mm-hmm. our options? Well, I guess the one of the questions is that you can get people to talk, but how do you know what the value of their intelligence is? I mean, it's been said yeah. that people will talk just to stop the torture. And in fact, if you are, we could call them enhanced techniques. If, if you are under great distress, you're more likely to just say anything to get it to stop. Yeah, that's, that's a question that people have not asked enough in the past 17 years, and especially since the program has become public knowledge. You cannot put somebody under aggressive interrogation unless you understand details of their background because you do not know, A, when they're lying, and B, you can't box them. Let me give you a specific example. I know you have traveled to eight places, eight al-Qaeda locations in the past two years. You don't know as an al-Qaeda prisoner that I know that. I'm going to ask an open question. Can you talk about your activities over the past two years? Let's say you list every one of those locations. I'm going to start to say that's interesting. Maybe they're, the word we used was compliant. Not that they're truthful, mm-hmm. that, that, but they're compliant. Let's say you skip one of those locations and you'd been there for two weeks. A, I know you're not compliant, and I'm not going to tell you that. 
And B, I know there's some reason that you skipped mentioning that location. I know this sounds odd, but the lies are sometimes as interesting as the truths. The only way you can get to that, and this is why one of the reasons we only took in the top prisoners or the top al-Qaeda detainees, is if you know enough detail about the background to box them. If you don't know that detail, you can't figure out when they're lying. Hmm. So if somebody said, you know, John came to Afghanistan to my training camp in uh, 1999, and he was about 23 years old, and I think he was from, pick a country, Denmark, they might think that's a throwaway. For us, that's gold. Tell me about the technique known as waterboarding, which is, as you describe it, a little more. There are a couple of different versions of this pouring and being strapped in. Um, yeah. How often was it used? How effective was it? Do you think the public is has been focused on this uh, too much or it plays too much of a role in the public's understanding of what went on? Look, I let me be clear. I think the public has a right with the Congress to debate whether this is what they want America to do. And people come up. I've been attacked in public on this issue. People talking to me about whether they think this is right. Fair debate. I think the appropriate question is when the United States gets into a moment of duress and they think that they have detainees that can give them information that could save lives, is it appropriate to use physical pressure against a detainee? Forget about I get really irritated when people say this stuff isn't effective. Mm-hmm. My answer would be, well, first, I think it was, but that's irrelevant. My answer to them would be, so you think if it's effective, your, your moral compass is going to change. If your moral compass is the United States should not do that, well, then stick with it. That's okay. The United States Congress decides that. In 2002 and 2003, they told us this was okay. They moonwalked a few years later. That's how the U.S. Congress operates. But if the American people don't like this, and again, polling data doesn't really reflect what some people think. And polling data will still tell you, there's not a lot of it, but will still tell you a lot of Americans say, well, in some circumstances, I think this is all right. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that's what they say. I think the right debate is, should we do this? Not whether it's effective, not what waterboarding is, not whether waterboarding is torture. By the way, torture is against the law. We did stuff that we did not think was torture, and the Department of Justice told us it was not torture. The question is, do you want it or not? End of story. Okay. Was it healthy or helpful the way our current president talked about wanting to bring back torture and waterboarding? This is unhealthy. If you're going to have a conversation about this, this is a serious issue related to human rights and how America is perceived overseas. Bring your experts into the room Ask them what they think, figure out the scenarios under which you would like to use those techniques. You have to bring the Congress in because there's going to be legislative issues here. Ensure that people in the intelligence community are not going to be vilified, attacked, and maybe even uh, charged, indicted for doing this stuff. You can't just get out on Twitter and say, I think this is a good idea. It's too serious for that. People like me look at that and say, give me a break. And by the way, my, I don't think my friends would do it anyway. Cause they'd say we got sold down the river once we'll get sold down the river again. Ain't happening. Right. You talk about, you know, would the American people want to do it? And, and an expert in your book says, you know, maybe in 2002, the answer is yes. But by 2012, the, uh, the, the wounds are healing over and the answer is no about how extreme. This is what I want to ask you. In 2009, you withdrew from a nomination to a high post because it was leaked that a Republican was going to ask you tough questions about the CIA's program. Do you think if you were renominated to a post today, how has how has the temperature changed or how has the um, appetite for really going after someone who was involved in these programs as an analyst? How do you think that's changed? 
Uh, let me be blunt. I'm not a big fan of the Congress because I don't think either side represents us well. I think they represent party and not people. I think the question would be whether members on either side, Democrats or Republicans, forget about what we did, thought they could gain advantage. I don't think they would care much about what I was involved in or what I knew about 15 years ago. Their question would be whether I can gain advantage. I think the answer would be no. I also think I do CNN commentary now. I couldn't be nominated because someone would say he's been too blunt on TV and he'll get crushed in a hearing because people are going to attack what he said on CNN over time, which is fine. The book by Philip Mudd is Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. And Philip Mudd is the ex-deputy director of the CIA's counterterrorist center and the FBI's national security branch. He also comments on CNN quite frequently. Thank you. Great to talk to you. That was interesting. Thanks for having me. Now the spiel. Chuck Woolery offered an uninformed opinion on racism, and Twitter said in unison, change that card. No, wait. That's a wrong game show. He never hosted card sharks. Uh, they said, buy a vow. Actually, it was off Wheel of Fortune after the early days. Uh, they said, we'd like to take the physical challenge. Stop. I think we're all massively misremembering Woolery's scant contribution to the national conversation. What he said was back in two and two. Did a little hand gesture, and for this, he got a claim, became famous, and parlayed that into really not much else, unless you ignore the hosting of Scrabble and the very much like Scrabble, but not so much as to get sued lingo. You know lingo. Hi, everybody. I'm Chuck Woolery. Welcome to lingo. Nope, you don't know lingo. Searching, searching the memory banks. Here, Here comes, comes the, the D. D. Stopper. Okay, if I had to rank the best things about the game show Scrabble, I would say the stopper sound effect was one, and the theme song was second, gameplay was third, and a distant fourth was Chuck Woolery. Oh, you don't remember the theme song? Here it is. I like theme songs with no lyrics that somehow clearly imply the name of the show. Dynasty work like that. Entertainment Tonight work like that. Listen. Personal note from my own brain, whenever I listen to This American Life, I ascribe to it the theme song from Entertainment Tonight. This American Life. I have told Ira that. He was, uh, shall we say, bemused. Speaking of entertainment tonight, Jonathan Swan of Axios posts tidbit from sources at the GOP leader donor retreat. Donors had dinner last night at the top of a mountain overlooking Jackson Hole. Ivanka, Trump that is, spoke on a little stage in a moderated conversation with Mary Hart, the former Miss South Dakota and host of Entertainment Tonight. They talked about women's empowerment and got into guns a little bit at the end. Mary Hart, bless my heart. Such Chuck foolery. The late 80s called. They want their empty suits back. And given the tailoring trends of the time, there will be a lot of room in those suits. You could fit in, say, Crockett and Tubbs, maybe Morton Downey Jr., Rockwell, Yahoo Sirius, Dan Quayle. But in matters horribly offensive, no one can surpass Chuck Woolery, who my spell check insists I change to foolery. What Woolery said was about the New York Times Magazine special 1619 section marking the 400th anniversary of slavery of African people in the Americas. 
And Woolery said this, racism has nothing to do with race. Racism is the progressive left crying out for attention. If you disagree with the progressive left, they consider you racist. The capitalization and punctuation of that tweet, by the way, showing clear influences in the work of a Mr. Donald Trump, or perhaps the guy holding an apocalyptic sign near the entrance to the Holland Tunnel. Woolery, who again, my spell check, tells me, insists I change to foolery. Woolery has 600,000 followers because who wouldn't want to bask in this man's wisdom? I mean, a four times married evangelical Christian whose podcast I have listened to and thought, huh, with a few more reps, this guy could be the Wink Martindale of right-wing drivel. But it is 2019, and unlike the Scrabble game show of yore, there are no stoppers. Woolery opines, we all know about his opinions, and we all react. I guess it's useful to put a name to an imagined unnamed critic of the 1619 package. And he's not the only one. Newt Gingrich was critical. Byron York was critical. But I monitor a lot of, I'd say, normal, rational conservative media, the Bulwark, Bill Crystal, Commentary Magazine, the Heritage Foundation. Okay, they're a little too tea party to be uh, that normal. But there is no huge, you're making too big a thing of slavery backlash to the 1619 magazine section. You may think there is. I've seen a lot of liberal media saying, oh, look at these conservatives not liking it. It's a select and extreme, though perhaps somewhere in the middle of the conservative movement take that the New York Times Magazine did something wrong with their 1619 section. I went to the National Review's main page and their main critique is by Jim Garrity. It's, you're not going to agree with it, right? But I'll quote it to you and it's, kind, it's rational. It's in the realm of the, I disagree with this, but it's not racist. Here we go. Would the country as a whole be better off with a greater understanding of slavery and its legacy in American history? Absolutely. The country would be better off with more understanding of just about any chapter of American history. The 1619 Project argues with considerable justification that most of us have been seeing only one part of the portrait of the founding formation and growth of our country and then reframes the portrait to leave out some of the most consequential and underdiscussed African-Americans in our history. Okay, that last part... He had listed some African-American heroes who he thought should have been mentioned. Harriet Tubman. Right, she wasn't mentioned. It's not the shame. That's not what the 1619 Project was doing. Garrity also says they should have mentioned Ida Mae Wells, the journalist, which is really funny because Nicole Hannah-Jones was the editor of the entire 1619 Project. Her Twitter handle is Ida Bay Wells. Get it? It's like a riff. She acknowledges it every time she tweets. But my point is... The 1619 package can be impactful and great, and you can even have some quibbles with it. I had some quibbles with it. I don't think most traffic jams occurred because of slavery, though maybe some in Atlanta did. Without having as fuel for your fire the idea that there are conservatives out there or even rando former game show hosts who are totally getting it wrong and denigrating the project. I know it's 2019, and the 2019 way of doing things is to seek out and then add fuel to your personal fire when someone idiotic or irrelevant or sadly formerly very relevant like Newt Gingrich says something denigrating to a project that you think has worth. It is the 2019 way of doing things, but it needn't be. The 1619 Project can stand by itself no matter what Chuck Woolery, check notes, mm, foolery says. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They're hoping that everything you're going for hits the bullseye. 
And guess what? We've got a live show coming up in New York City, Brooklyn, Monday the 16th. That's September 16th. At the Bell House, we'll be joined by actual, real-life, professional comedians plying their craft. Art, dare I say art. So a little stand-up comedy, a little sit-down talk. We'll even critique young, up-and-coming comic who will bask in their collective wisdom. Hari Kondabalu will be there. Many others will announce exactly who in the upcoming days. Go to slate.com slash live to get your tickets now. The gist, where knowledge is king, lady luck is queen, and obscure references from the time I was homesick in fourth grade or jacks. Oompa-dee-poo-doo-poo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>